Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the smoothest glass of Amarillo for your mind, to Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I am half of your hosts, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer, joined as ever by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. How to do? And yeah, today we are recording in the morning, which is an unnatural and unholy time. Um, I, mm. I don't like mornings, not a morning person. And so I apologize in advance if we seem discombobulated. Uh, I think both of us are feeling the weekend feeling. But uh, yeah. crickets Gabriel are supposed to chirp around sunset at night or right, exactly. in the deep night. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is just unnatural. But uh, regardless, we will soldier on ahead and uh, try to keep it to around an hour this time because I think our last two episodes have been an hour and a half each. <laughs> which is they were great. special editions. <laughs> they were sort of, I agree, but man, there was a lot. Um, so you have a hypothesis, and I think we've sort of brushed on this at various points uh, over the past couple of months, but it's worth considering in depth, and that is the Ramafura hypothesis. Is that correct? That is correct. So, so yeah, I went to I went to uh, high school with uh, Ramaphosa's second son, and he was just known as Rama. That's what everyone right. called him. And I remember in high school discussing what we would call Ramaphosa if he became president. And the, you know, we wondered whether we would just, the country would just call him Rama because Ramaphosa is a bit too long for like headlines or catchiness. And as it turns out, uh, the president came to be known as Rama, Ramaphoria or the words around him. You know, people have played a lot with, um, yeah. with that name. But Ramafura, <laughs> it kind of, I think, just poetically uh, fits so well <laughs> that it's worth discussing. Right. The hypothesis is that, uh, that that Ramaphosa becomes something of a becomes something like a president for life. That uh, constitutional democracy erodes in the name of pragmatic um, stability unity, uh, maybe some business go forward. And that in a lot of ways, this is disturbing. And in a lot of ways, it's quite welcome. And the, the contemporary analog analogs would be something like Paul Kagame in Rwanda, or Vladimir Putin in Russia. So not autocrats in the full sense of, you know, Chinese Communist Party, one-party state, illegal political opposition explicitly, um, but something well, like a de facto autocrat <clears throat> in which I think, I think you know, you real could, opposition I, and journalism is undermined. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe you could make that case that uh, uh, Rwanda is that, though. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of... Uh, you know, we, <laughs> we don't hear much about um, uh, Rwandan opposition parties unless their leaders are being killed in foreign countries at least in russia we hear about protests yes yes yeah so so it's a gray scale right um right the <clears throat> the there are sharp lines between autocracy and democracy um but those sharp lines kind of divide 
not just the you know one extreme for the other they also kind of divide these ladder steps in between and i think part of the reason that this is a good time to consider the the ramafura hypothesis is the growing pushback narrative regarding the mid-july riots unrest which is mm -hmm. that there was this you know uh dozen secret plotters who were in charge of a kind of uh, ethnic mobilization project who want to take over the union buildings and do so by making the country ungovernable basically set up the anti-NEC to vote Ramaphosa out through some kind of motion of no confidence and have him replaced with someone else. That's been the sort of narrative that's been created about right. what happened a couple of weeks ago. And then as a result, what you need is... Yes. And as a result, what you need is the president to be empowered to um, do all kinds of things, not just send in the army to, to put down mobs that are burning and pillaging... Uh, but also to kind of purge, kind of, you know, it seems like a, you know, you, freedom of speech, you know, it is, it's, there, there is such a thing as incitement to violence um, and that should mm. not be allowed. Uh, but then there's also such a thing as like saying that people need to hit the streets because we don't like what's going on here. And, uh, I've, you know, it is just, clearly reasonable some people in the constitutional court thought that zuma should not have been arrested so i think they're wrong uh, but anyone who just complains about that and says we should go and do a protest about that uh if you make that illegal you're setting a very terrible precedent uh even worse precedent set by the police going into people's homes and saying hey you've got a tv where's the receipt for that if you can't produce a receipt then it gets confiscated uh, if someone came into where I live, I wouldn't have a receipt for, I mean, I don't have a TV, but I don't have a receipt for any of the right. yeah, stuff that the I do that have. Right, yeah, it's not the way that should be done, ideally. And yet, not a lot of complaints about that. You know, so, if, so anyway, in terms of pushing back on the rights, it does seem like uh, precedents are potentially being set for subverting due process Uh in the name of stability card crackdowns that freedom of speech and the the demand that police may only enter your private space if they have a warrant um that right. uh, your your private um, property I, is yours and it, it can be proven otherwise in an un yet unpublished in an as of yet unpublished article i wrote these are the norms that sort of hold democracy together the like expectations of just how things are done and uh, when you have a dramatic event like this, the potential for them to be eroded is quite serious. So, uh, you know, when there's a riot and when you have to suddenly have civilians doing things and the police searching houses without warrants and all that kind of thing, it seems okay in the moment. And then that makes it easier for it to happen again in the future. Um, because, you know, well, we did it last time and it wasn't too bad. Why can't we do it again? And uh, yeah, by such such cuts that the such small little cuts that you move from a society where democracy is the only thing imaginable to a society where well, you know, maybe 
maybe we should consider some alternatives. <laughs> um, I see Gabriel is currently dancing around his bedroom. I'm not entirely sure why. Yeah. yeah. And I just saw that my uh, laptop, much like our constitutional norms, uh, was showing very low battery. And so I went to try and plug <laughs> yes, it in. That's very important. <laughs> so I... I think I could hold so, it so I think So I think that's, that's right. And the right... I think the riots are not the only thing, uh, and these and these sort of police and army campdowns. Um, I think the other side of this is the election, and I've been talking a lot about this on Daily Franchise, and we discussed a little bit on Two Crickets last mm. week. So I won't go into that too much again, but basically um, something to bear in mind is that Afrobarometer, firstly, it's, it's polling data this week shows that over 50% of South Africans are vaccine hesitant. So the idea yeah. of waiting until we reach uh, community immunity because 80%, 70% of the country gets vaccinated, even two-thirds, whatever. That idea is very worrying uh, in terms of its uh, plausibility right. being undermined. It, by it the ain't never going to happen. It ain't never going to happen. And one should be clear, the chairperson of the IEC, Glenn Machini, and the IEC report authored by uh, Dehang Moseneke, they both make this claim that as long as there's, you haven't reached community immunity, it'll always be better and safer to have one more vaccine. And Glenn Machini said it's a precondition uh, of having an election that mass vaccination has already taken place. And he doesn't exactly define what that means. Um, right. But the argument undefined as it is, is just as open to be used in February as it is now. And that means if you get one postponement, you get another one, you get another one. Okay. So but the point is, Afrobarometer also showed previously, I think 2019, 2018, that two-thirds of South Africans were willing to give up democracy if it meant more jobs. So yes. that's a worry. And I think that that's partly explains why... Feel too good. <laughs> I think that's partly why the election issue hasn't become like a super big deal. Like in America, Donald Trump in 2020, before any vaccines, he was like, guys, maybe we should have the election a little bit later. And it is pretty clear that, you know, this the same kind of fundamentals were in play, both virologically and, and politically. Uh, if, a, right. if, if the election could be postponed, um, uh, without that being blamed on the incumbent, if they could somehow make it seem like an independent decision, then probably the incumbent would have stood a better chance at the elections because they were going through a tough time economically. There'd been all these riots and unrest, which showed discontent with the status quo. So if you could buy a year between that, get some stability going, get the economy going again, that would improve the odds. I don't know if it would change the outcome, but it would improve the odds. Here again, I don't know that it will change the outcome, but I can see why, uh, you know, I, I can clearly see what the political um, equation is. Anyway, so in America, just the thought of that uh, postponement of an election. Elicited utter outrage. Yeah. People were, and Americans people were, really like the some idea of the op-eds. Democracy. saying this yeah. is this is the beginning of the fascist coup it's the end of democracy 
Donald Trump is finally uh, fulfilling his destiny that we've predicted he's always going to be uh, do, which is to become an autocrat. And the idea never really went anywhere. And by the way, those op-eds weren't just coming from Democrats. They were a lot of them were coming from uh, you know people who support the Republican Party. Uh, so so here's so here's the thing about the Ramafura hypothesis, and 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 the sort of point about um, about autocracy in general is that I think it's a mistake to it's a it's a kind of historical mistake to think that autocracy is the accomplishment of one man. That's, there's something about Roman history, which I don't want to make too much of, but Nick will correct me if I'm wrong. By convention, once Rome stopped being a democracy in the sense that uh, it had an autocrat who was in charge and the Senate just played a kind of oversight role, uh, the convention of appointing a Caesar was that the Senate would say, we want you to be Caesar. We want you to have full control. And then the response would be from Tiberius, Augustus, all these guys. They'd say, no, 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 no. I can't do that. That's very dangerous. You, you, you mustn't, you must have a consensual yeah, form of government. Yeah. Then they say, no, 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 but we really need you because there's this particular crisis. And like we agree with you in an ideal state, we would have. A consensual form of government, but right now we need you to take charge. And then the guy would have to say a second time, no, 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 listen to me. I can't do this. I'm not a good enough person to do this. No one is good enough to do this. This is this is crazy. And I, you know, I've got many flaws, and some people say that I'm too this, and some people say that I'm too that. And you know, I don't say that any of them are right, but I must admit that I'm not a right. perfect person. And please don't give me this heavy, heavy responsibility. And then they say, no, 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 a third time, but we really want you. To please just please don't make us do this democracy thing because it's exhausting and it's distracting and then we fight with each other and you know it's a terrible crisis that we've got right now that you know the the grain situation in Egypt's not very good or the barbarians up in the north are making us very worried or there's this new religion sort of peasant revolution thing going on and you know it'd be very nice to 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 do what you say and and to just keep a democratic form of government but just this once. We're asking you a third time. Please, will you put on the crown and rule us they, like serfs? They, <laughs> and they, then on the third time, some, you say, okay, you've got me. I'll do it. Yeah, this. no, you've, you've twisted my arm enough. Um, sometimes it would be even even more devilish than that. The uh, the candidate for emperor would say that the troops of his legion, because it was almost always a general, had spontaneously, without any pre-planning, just declared him emperor, and he was scared to deny them because they might even kill him if he, if he refused. So yeah. to protect himself, he had to. He, it was he had no choice. There, there, no, you couldn't do anything except assume full power over the lives of every single individual. Um, and the point, and yeah. I, I just want to also make the point that to get to that state, it didn't happen. They didn't just suddenly decide on a system like this. They first had a, a case where a dictator took over and punished his political enemies with violence. And then he, he then he gave up power and he said, okay, guys, no, that was just an emergency. It's over. We're back to normal. One off, no president said, we'll never do it again. Exactly. Then it happened again. And then it happened again. And then again and again. And it just became the norm. And in the end... 
I think it was about a century or two after the first emperor. The Senate meets and they actually, there's no person breathing down their necks, forcing them to become, uh, to, to, to pick an emperor. And they go, well, you know, we could restore the Republic, but like, ooh, what a, that's just, we, we can't do no, that. No one, no one no, does no, that. No. Yeah, let's just, we'll just find an emperor. And so they did. <laughs> because it became, the alternative became unimaginable. Yes. Exactly, and so and so the point that I'm trying to bring out, and and it, you know, the history is complicated, and in some cases, the the the, the uh, aspirant emperors really were Machiavellian characters who whose whose speeches, oh no, I don't want this, were complete nonsense. It was just convention, and sometimes it is a little bit more earnest, but always the point is always. There was some kind of um, popular call, some kind of urgent demand that democracy be subverted, abrogated, yeah, uh, just abandoned. To think, just to think of a, a, a more recent example, um, Turkey's President Erdogan, he's not quite an autocrat, but he's not quite a democrat either, but he became much more of an autocrat after a coup against him, and the call mm. became... Uh, and the population, in order to show the, the people trying to pull off the coup and subvert democracy, you need to fall in behind Erdogan and support the regime. In fact, it, it, that, uh, that was such a big factor in enhancing Erdogan's power in recent years that some people believe that he himself set up the coup to make sure Just that he to... had something to boost his popularity. Right. And so, and so what I'm trying to say, I think what this these historical and contemporary reflections indicate, and I think similar remarks could be made about Kigami, is that the Ramafura hypothesis is not a hypothesis centrally, primarily about Ramaphosa, Cyril, the individual, his psychology, his aspirations, his dispositional capacities. It's a hypothesis about South Africa. It's a hypothesis about South Africa being in this position where the anointed and uh, much of the distracted working classes and unemployed classes and so on find themselves in a position where they are more and more eager for, um, you know, for big man leadership. Uh, and he just happens to be the person in that position. And, and maybe he doesn't just happen to be there. Maybe he's got a more active or less active hand. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't have much detail about that. Uh, but, but precisely the the central thesis in the Ramaphosa hypothesis is that it's the state of the nation rather than the person who makes the state of the nation address, uh, which will render this hypothesis either either viable and plausible or even true or, or ridiculous or silly or, or a far stretch. So this is really not a discussion about one man. It's a discussion about one nation. Yeah. and whether we're in that place. And I think that I want to share a, a sort of anecdote about um, about another nation, about Russia, uh, that made me, that came back to my mind. So around 2012, 2013, I was in an awkward social space in Princeton where I had been uh, 
disallowed from writing my final mathematics exam and by a professor who said, you're too good to be in this class anyway. Uh, so I'd stopped coming to the class and thought I'll just write the final exam. And then he said, no, you can't write the final exam because you don't have attendance, sufficient attendance to write this. And I was like, dude, come on, this is maths. You don't need attendance for maths. You just need to pass the test. And he was like, no, 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 check the rules. So I had to do, uh, so I failed and I had to do an extra semester. And I was truly humiliated. It's, I still feel a bit of a blush admitting this now. Anyway, it meant that all of my peers had already graduated and I graduated with them and the dean was sort of like, like, you know, we tried convincing this guy that he should let you through, but we couldn't convince him and it is the professor's right ultimately to make this decision. So you can graduate with your class, but you do have to come back and make up this class. So I'd have to go back from New York uh, every week and catch a couple of classes and then I'd be sitting there in Princeton from Tuesday to Thursday uh, kind of feeling most weeks too awkward to go out and hang out at the eating clubs which is where the students go and drink at night so instead I'd go to the bars or, or graduate students and when you go drinking in the same bar every night you kind of learn some things for example that on Tuesdays they had uh, open mic night where a group of Russian uh, physicists, young professors would uh, drink and because Russian men don't weep, they would pull out their electric guitars and let the guitars weaken, weep on their behalf uh, through songs by Lenin, Grad and Dolphin and other kind of early uh, capitalists. You know, <laughs> Russia was so miserable in the 90s it really produced like a very depressing kind of uh, uh, variation on Nirvana sound and I I slowly befriended these guys you know I heard them talking Russian and the second night I sort of dropped a little Russian hey guys bye-bye and then the third time they were like hey come hang out with us tell us your story why do you speak Russian I'm South African they were really fond of that and then I spent like three nights drinking with them before I finally popped the uh, I waited until the third date uh, <laughs> before making my move and I said, guys, now we need to talk about politics. Why does your country love Putin? Right. They all went quiet and they looked at each other as if they all know the answer, but they were sort of pondering who should be the one to deliver it. And then the lead guitarist, a uh, great astrophysicist, he said, because Russia needs a Tsar. And... Uh, <laughs> And here's the top now. <laughs> and and the, <laughs> we kind of laughed. And we discussed that. And, and, the, and the interesting sort of polling point was that there's an inverse relationship between Putin's popularity and the popularity of government. The less popular right. government is, especially local government, the more popular the Tsar is. Because the, the sort of common man's thought is that uh, the Tsar is the person who saves you from the government. The Tsar is effectively the leader of the opposition. Right. So, so this reminds me of a Jewish joke that kind of uh, fits in here, is that there's, there's a legend that when Jews were being pogromed in Russia during the Tsarist years, when they were being attacked by the local community or the government or persecuted for their religion, they would say, if only the Tsar knew, he would protect us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
<laughs> and this is such a South African problem, right? Like the the worse the government does, the better it is for the leader of the opposition. Uh, that that was in, in in the 2019 election. That was essentially the sort of I guess we could call it the B Peter Bruce argument. Yes, was uh, you need to you need to elect Ramaphosa and vote for him, so that he can defeat the people inside his own party. And vote for the party Park, with with the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. And this is the UP's argument in Russia. And with the, I was in Emirantia Park last weekend and I bumped into some uh, wealthy types who reside in Westcliff. And I said, how are you guys doing? What do you think about these riots? And they thought it was very terrible. We must delay the election. And we really, you must register to vote and you must vote for the ANC. Because even if it's just at municipal level, you have to show support for Ramaphosa right now. Uh, and <laughs> I wanted to jump into the lake in Emmerich Park, but it was too cold. So, I, so <laughs> these are real human beings that I've known my whole life, and I really like them. They're generally very smart and wonderful people. Um, so, you know, this is not just a matter of like uh, lacking an education that's formal or whatever, you know. This is this is a line that human beings we we just belong to a species we are we are what we are and these are these are psychological tropes that repeat themselves across time and space and anyway so we this is the kind of thing we were discussing with these Russians and then uh, we carried on drinking and these guys had complained about their family lives and like how they missed Russia and they moved to America and they found Americans to be sort of like a nation of of children who don't cover their noses when they sneeze and of very earnest and poorly mannered and sort of crass. And they much preferred the kind of Russian reserve and the deep wells of poetic and musical traditions that are drawn from there. But they said they have to leave. And and I said, so why do you have to leave? And they said, well, because we watched an entire nation fall in love with one man. And they said at first it was the most fascinating, frustrating, interesting, debatable thing. And it was always like, you know, do we really love him? Does he really love us? Are we just using each other for the this or the that? Is it just like a rebound thing, but it's not real? Like toxic relationships, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then they said, you know, and for them, it got to the point where they realized you love, we are in love, even if you say that you're not in love, because we just keep talking about him. We keep worrying and wondering and discussing and ooh and ah. It's just like an obsession. We clearly are falling in love. And then the first guy said again, but the truly terrifying thing, the, the terrifying thing is when we realized this is true love. <laughs> that is when it became dark. True love is when you realize he is the one. And then the next guy said, true love, it means he is the one and only. And then the third guy said, true love, it means this. He is the one. And the only one. And I could feel, I felt like a cat in a room with no windows. Hmm. And I understood, you know, there is, there is something about true love. That it's, it, you know, in true love, you can get angry with each other. You can be happy with each other. You can be frustrated with each other. But this is the one and only one. And I think it's that kind of mood 
that kind of affect, which is so valuable and important that is enshrined in the vows of like every major religion when you get married. Uh, right. That, that, you know, this is clearly something that all kinds of people, uh, you know, we all fall in love if we're all lucky. But there's something really weird about when a whole nation falls in love. And the Ramafura hypothesis, again, it's not about him. It's about us. It's about falling mm -hmm. in love with this man and him being the one, the one and only, the one and only one. And, and from a political science perspective, you know, Machiavelli's argument to the prince was, look, the best trick you can pull off is just to convince your people to put your people in the in this position where they can't imagine an alternative. Hmm. So when they're angry with you, they're going to do something. When they're happy with you, they're going to do something. When they're kind of feeling a little bit in two minds about you, they're going to do something. But what they're never going to do is try and replace you because they can't imagine an alternative to you being right. in charge. And that's kind of what Zuma was speaking to when he said, with a straight face, we're going to rule until Jesus comes. And nobody laughed, you know. Yes. This is uh this is this is the kind of this is the kind of true love that I have a lot of I have a serious emotional connection with because I grew up um, loving the ANC. I <laughs> you know Mandela was the hero and. The ANC was this grand liberation party and, and falling out of love was not just a, a rational process. It really was a profoundly emotional thing. And a lot of it did at the beginning. One of the things about true love is when, is when you, when you are truly in love and, and, and the, some uh, scantily clad, uh, <laughs> you know, bombshell strolls past and your thoughts wander, uh, you kind of chastise yourself for, for imagining uh, a deviation. There's something noble and honorable about sticking to the line, even if it's not really working. And that is, when I was like fully in love with the ANC, that is what it felt like to imagine voting for another party. The only way, literally, like a lover, you know, there's this classic lover's problem where, okay, something's not going well in the relationship. So you, and you, and someone else flirts with you and you think about having an affair and then you justify, you're like, well, here's what I want to do. I want to have this affair in a way to punish my lover. Right. To show her that she's not behaving the way that she should behave. And, and this is what you get. So that's exactly how I felt about voting for an opposition party when I was a teenager and in my twenties, <laughs> I thought if, if I've got any reason to vote for the, for the DA or the DP or whatever, it's to kind of teach the ANC a lesson that they must, they must, you know, show me that they love me back as hard as I love them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to cheat on the ANC. <laughs> That's how I thought, man. And I think that a lot of people really do think like that. And I think yeah. that it's, in those conditions that that the that the that the Ramafura hypothesis seems like it makes a bit of sense. But you were, I think, I don't know, Nick, help me out here. Push back against this. Do, am I am I? Yeah, so I mean, 
you say that it's that it's not just about the man, that it's about the the people, the population, right? And and you know uh, that that if the people demand that Ramaphosa becomes a dictator, he will become a dictator or an autocrat or something like that. But I do think that it actually it does take two to tango. Not everyone can be a dictator. I could not be a dictator. Um, as much nah. sometimes as I may, I may sit nah. sit and, and dream of of wielding supreme executive power and uh, crushing my enemies beneath my iron heel. Um, I don't think I really have the skill set for it. And crucially, I also don't project the right image. So look at every single autocrat. And a part of the way they manipulate their population is they project a sort of heroic uh, Atlas-like image, right? They're struggling under some sort of great weight. Uh, so Putin is he's holding back the West and NATO, and at the same time, he's holding back the demons within his own government. And he's really, really, really strong. He's the strongest man in the world, but even he is suffering under the strain. And uh, poor Kagame is, you know, struggling to rescue his nation from poverty and also defeat the genocide deniers, as uh, his regime calls their enemies. Yeah, and resist the sort of Europeans that would rather sort of perpetually yoke Rwanda right. under the weight of paternalistic charity. You chased away the French. Exactly. And all exactly. kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so for that, you need you need to give off that aura of strength. And Ramaphosa, he does cuddly well. Um, he's very good at at looking cuddly and friendly and likable on on camera and it, you know there's a particular sort of middle class person who i think really digs that side of him because he just seems so likable um even some of our colleagues who who really don't like uh ramaphosa's government policies or anything really about him find him likable mm. but he just seems like too much of a wet noodle to ever really be able to turn his image into one that projects incredible firm strength. That's just the feeling I get about, about him. You know, whenever there's a crisis, what's his preferred method of dealing with it? It's just to not be there. He just disappears like mist in the wind. <laughs> and while I think uh, in the current place that we're in and the way that the current media environment works, it's actually very clever uh, politically, um, I think that that is a habit that he would need to shake because, you know, Putin Putin wouldn't disappear in the wind. At least he wouldn't want people to think that he had when a crisis happened. Um, and I, I just I just can't imagine that Ramaphosa would be the the kind of personality he would be able to to do that. Now, to be fair, uh, I think the important part about the Ramaphosa hypothesis is that or well, the Ramaphura hypothesis, rather, is not necessarily that Ramaphosa could rule the country like an autocrat, but that he might so lay the groundwork that his anointed heir would be able to. And perhaps that heir might be someone who is more uh, of the right disposition. What do you make of so, that? So, well, let me let me push back by by saying that I'm not sure I agree with the premise. In other words... I think Ramaphosa does give off this cuddly affect pretty well. But I think that I think that 
a lot of his supporters and a lot of South Africans have a sort of tacit understanding of how hypocrisy works and how duplicity works. In other words, Machiavelli's argument, for example, was that the good ruler can't possibly be a good Christian in the, in the church's sense. It can't be full of charity and kindness and care, but might want to project that image for a while when it suits him. But really, uh, you know, the, the astute political observer will kind of know that this guy is lying and love him for it because they know that the reason he's lying is in order to achieve the good. And as much as Ramaphosa is respected for his ability to project warmth, he has also always been respected for his ability to deceive. Hmm. So from his union days, people who thought he was a great unionist thought, you know, what he's really good at doing is tricking the, the white monopoly capitalists into it's getting us more than themselves. They're right. Mm. Right. And during the negotiations, like if you thought he was a good negotiator, it's precisely because you thought the skill of a good negotiator is to manipulate. Uh, when he became, when he returned to government under uh, Jacob Zuma, there was the hot mic take of him secretly telling these old gogos in the rural heartland that if you vote for the opposition, the Boers will come back and take back the land. So, you know, there's this sense of like, you know, he'll say one thing on the camera, oh, racial unity, whatever, but he'll say another thing quietly. Uh, likewise, the very reason that Ramaphosa's popularity came apart from Jacob Zuma's was the thought that Ramaphosa was a snake in Jacob Zuma's crawl, that he was there undermining him secretly and quietly and showing a warm and cuddly face to Jacob Zuma and saying, oh, comrades, we must stand together in public, but quietly behind the scenes, stabbing him in the back. There is no loving Ramaphosa in 2017 without thinking he's a, he's a grand manipulator and liar and quite a hard ass. And the case for Ramaphosa, the, the Cyril Ruma, the, the Peter Bruce argument was precisely that you need to show this guy support so that he can turn the screws on his enemies. Uh, but he needs to do that, you know, with this sort of loving glow around him. Now, Add all of that background to the immediate conditions that triggered this conversation. A country in which a lot of pundits are not just sort of saying, hey, in mid-July, please send in the army to defend Moy River Plaza and warehouses that are being looted and disrupting supply chains that mean now we have to fly bread into Durban. They're also saying, you know, let's get some, let's get some, crackdown on social media and public expression let's let's send the army into squatter camps and townships to take people's tvs and uh bedside tables if they can't produce uh, receipts we saw a similar thing when the lockdown first started you know the army was making people do squats and push-ups and ramaposa's uh from as far as i can tell from ipsos ramaposa enjoyed a huge boost in support when this was going on and that wasn't much dented by 50 people being uh, killed or dying in police custody within the first few weeks of the lockdown there's you know there is a sense in which life is quite cheap here yeah but exactly and which authority mean, is yearned for and ramaposa has been at the back end of that what does everyone want they want him to be hard ass and like get rid of ace machashulez william kiza jacob zuma uh, get out the rotten apples <laughs> and slowly but surely this is happening the more that it happens perhaps as was the case with Putin, who seemed, you know, kind of cuddly in his way back in the day. The more, 
I know it's hard to imagine, but you should go check him out in like the early 2000s. He's like, I've got this dream of new Russia and like the Soviet Union was a noble dream, but it was like it had some false premises. And we, we he was he was so keen to work with the West, and he was the nicest guy to George W. Bush. And yes, I remember was, what was it that George W. Bush said about him? I looked into his soul and saw no evil. Yeah, the opposite of Joe Biden, who said I looked into his eyes and saw no soul. <laughs> <laughs> but the so 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 the, the the point that I'm trying to make is that. There is a kind of autocrat who is very, as in an old Afrikaans phrase, like boer blink onderstunk, uh, shiny on top and like very dark underneath. And that's exactly what people love about this person is that they have two natures. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't want to name any names, but if I look inside our office, uh, we have mm. one uh, uh, leader who really is caring and kind and genteel um and perhaps in a slightly you know but also quite hard ass like when the when the decision needs to be made it's like no okay you you here you cut and and i don't know this this just takes me back to the first i you know i've got some shangan friends and some vendor friends and when ramaposa uh, started campaigning in 2017 and uh, became a sort of topic of round the Shisa Nyama uh, fire conversation. One of my friends is like really keen on talking about the the the, the cultural or tribal uh, differences of of South Africa. That, that you know that I don't know that sort of a lot of white Vits uh, types feel a very awkward mentioning. He was like, you know, the Zulu militant thing, it's, it's not altogether uh, unjustified and the closer kind of like uh, diplomatic vibe, also not entirely unjustified. The thing about vendors is when they want their enemies to go away, they just, they blow and like dust, the enemy disappears. This is what people see in Ramaphosa and this is why they love him. Because they think he's got this, this very cool attitude towards his enemies. That he's, that revenge is a dish served cool. That he's not in a rush to turn the knife. He's not going to hastily do this thing in a way that uh, gets him into trouble. He's going to do it slowly, like drip torture. One drop at a time, he's going to eat away at those agents of state capture and so on. And yeah, this, yeah. I'm not saying that that was a correct appraisal of Ramaphosa. I'm saying that what that is what was seen in him. And it is it, it, the, the central, you know, I don't know, the, the sort of background idea here is that in some sense, politicians do become, uh, or can become at least, what people see in them, even if it's not altogether mm. there in the first place. And you know, let's let's look at Mugabe because the Ramafuro hypothesis is something like South Africa's democracy. Can I, uh, like can I add a, a little Mugabe was a little not data a data point? Yeah, a little data point. Uh, what ethnic group do you think the new head of the Defence Force, South African Defence Force, is from? Uh, Scots, Scots <laughs> Irish. No, he is in fact Vendor, <laughs> which is interesting because Vendors make up what. Two percent of the population. Mm. 
And uh, hmm, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually looked up some, 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 some vendor persons of note when Ramaphosa was talking about ethnic mobilization. I was like, well, if there is a Zulu nationalist thing going, surely, you know, vendor businesses would be targeted on the sort of pretense that it's Zulus versus uh, the rest, including vendors who are connected with Ramaphosa, who's the most obvious target of, of animosity. Right. And whoo. There's yeah no there's some there's some uh, big SOEs and banks and uh, uh, <laughs> state departments that are like there's definitely a disproportionate thing going on there, but none of them were targeted. Yes, so I don't think it doesn't doesn't ethnic uh, does does their rise to prominence perhaps uh, coincide at all with uh, uh, Ramaphosa's ascension to power? Because <laughs> I think some people might suggest there's a connection between these two things. <laughs> it's an interesting idea so but but and and i i i can't i can't say enough to really expand on this but i can say you know robert mugabe's reputation uh within zanu uh before the zanu pf it was called zanu whatever it was 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 as the academic, right? He gets to Catholic school, hmm. and he's like this super hardcore Christian. The the argument made by Heidi Holland was that uh, when uh, leaders within the party were being assassinated or replaced by other means, the conspirators who are ambitious for power themselves would then be in this tricky spot where they're like, "Well, we've just plotted to." You know, the five of us have just plotted to destroy the next level up guy. And now one of us has to rise up to fill that position. But given that we know that we're all a bunch of snakes who are willing to kill within the party <laughs> in order to rise, uh, we can't really trust any of us to take that position and then not sort of kill off the rest. So who are we going to uh, elevate? And then they'd say, well, let's elevate Mugabe because he was the guy who was not there. He was the guy yes. who was stuck in the books uh, and was not at the conspiracy meetings. And it's not that he had no idea. People would sort of send overtures his way, and he would demure and this, this defer happens all the and time do with, exactly with, what you described as opposed to having done. The, uh, he, this, is, this is a story of so many uh, uh, leaders and autocrats. Um, I, think, I think I'm correct in saying you may know more about this than I, that uh, originally Stalin was seen as a bit of a thug and a Georgian uh, peasant idiot who didn't really know how to do anything. You know, he didn't really understand Marxism or theory or anything. He was a bit of a simpleton, and so you know, he wasn't wasn't something to be feared until uh, he had positioned himself so strongly within the party that it was very difficult to mess with him. I mean, everyone, that's why everyone thought Trotsky was obviously the next leader, right? Yeah, if you if you were worried about Napoleon, so so here's the the the, the, the opposites of 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 the the Ramafura hypothesis, career of Winston Churchill, where you have an individual that shapes their society, someone who really, by force of will, ingenuity of charm, character, and uh, logistics, manages to make such a difference that the, the society comes out other than it would have been, um, and the thought was the great worry in the early Soviet Union was that Trotsky would be Russia's Napoleon and that he would, he would make it all about himself and that he would be shaping society in his image. 
And in seeking out someone who couldn't do that, someone who would be shaped by society, they found Stalin. And the tragedy is they found someone who was the perfect kind of uh, sort of wet clay uh, whose hardened form was the essence of the Marxist ideology. Um, he really, you know, in, <laughs> uh, he, he, the, the, that ideology said that, look, uh, heaven on earth is so great that there's no price not worth paying. Right. And uh, he, he then, he then paid that price again and again in blood. So, so, and, and Mugabe, I really do. I mean, I'm, I, I, I've read some shorter biographical attempts. The, the, the only full-scale biography of Mugabe that I've read is Heidi Hollands. But the case that she makes is very much that he is shaped by the society that he's born into. And that if he had, you know, if, if Zimbabwe had been different, he would have come out differently. And that, you know, that his wife's influence was very telling when she died and when he started cheating on her and fell in with grace, that changed things. But more than that, his sort of uh, party surroundings uh, were were instrumental in making him into the kind of dictator that he was. And by the way, he was not super present. He was not racing out to be in the thick of things. Um, again, this 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 critique of Ramaphosa being a little bit aloof and distant. Uh, what kept uh, Mugabe going in so many ways was his aloofness, was his distance, and the fact that he didn't really see the consequences of the policies he was administering. Uh, was that he kept thinking things are going well. Now, I don't know who more than Ramaphosa could be deluded into believing that South Africa is actually doing well by, <laughs> by way of not <laughs> seeing what the hell is going on and just being told by ambitious apparatchiks that it's working and you mustn't trust these Americans or Brits or, or Russians or whoever. These, anyone who says that it's not working is just some kind of insurrectionary. And, and if you do want to psychologize this thing, none of us really know what's been going through Amaposa's mind in the last little while. But I don't think it's implausible to suppose that he believes that there has, that has been made against his presidency and that this might plant the sort of fruitful seed of, of paranoia in his mind. Mm. Uh, and, and paranoia is really the mood that you have to live inside for a while in order to become an autocrat. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, that's, that's the only thing I really want to say about his psychology is that insofar as he is capable of sustaining the Ramaphura hypothesis, it would be through paranoia and a paranoia, you know, watered or planted um, by uh, a, a series of riots, it's, it's worth remembering, that have been more lethal than the Sharpville massacre and the Soweto massacre combined and the Marikana massacre right. combined. Uh, th this really has been a, a deadly and, and traumatizing experience. And as much as, you know, the ordinary South African feels disturbed by what they've seen out their window or what they've seen on TV. If you thought this was all about you, that would be, that would, that would do something to you. You know, if you took this yeah. personally, 
if you thought the whole thing was about you. And what Ramaphosa has said in his letters and what he said in his national address suggests to me that he thinks this was all about him. Mm -hmm. You may well be right. All right. So what do you do um, if you want to if you want to disprove the Ramaphura hypothesis? You must fight to let us vote, and then uh, the ANC drops below fifty percent, a very psychological watershed uh, in the municipal right. elections, and uh, give people. You know, we all have these mutually uh, conflicting, annihilating ideas that sit in our minds at the same time because we are moody and irrational creatures, and so. Most South, the super majority of South Africans uh, think democracy is not that great. Jobs are great. Um, but also a super majority of South Africans think BE is not so great. A, a tax voucher-based system would be great. The ANC is corrupt. 90% of us think the country is going in the wrong direction. Uh, a lot of uh, blame against the ANC for scapegoating its own failures and all that kind of stuff. So you know, with, with the right moves being made in the public square and individuals making the right choices, I do think that the uh, that one of those uh, syllogisms could beat the other and that we could sort of come out of this um, in a slightly more American-type position where we just think hell's teeth, the vote really matters, um, yes. even though you can't eat it because everything that comes downstream of that uh short of that happening uh you know in 10 years time uh you can give me a phone call <laughs> and tell me what you think <laughs> about the ramafura hypothesis then <laughs> yes it's exactly the kind of thing that one is very happy to be wrong about okay Absolutely. uh with that said um let's close up now do some recommendations so that we can actually finish yeah. at an hour. Um, yeah. What uh, you have you got anything to recommend? You can go opening. Uh, you see, this is this is unfair because I was hoping that you would have something. Um, so I'm going to go with something a little bit unorthodox. I have no idea how many, if any, of our listeners uh, play video games, but I will suggest if you do. Um, there is a very complicated, difficult, independently made game called Project Zomboid, which attempts better than any other piece of media I've ever seen to depict the zombie apocalypse. And in terms of atmosphere and making you think about, you know, <laughs> how society actually sort of works and how much we depend on it, I think it's really fun uh, and really useful. Um, and I, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of fun playing it recently, especially with friends. And also it's made me think a little bit about, um, buying more canned food. <laughs> Which, I always wonder about, yeah. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I wonder about zombies because in the philosophical literature, a zombie is just something which is as close to a person as it can be consistent with the claim that. There's nothing it's like to be that. So to give mm. a sense of what I mean, when I look at a rock, a, a rock is an object that can be encountered in space and time. You can weigh a rock. It has various properties, both emergent and reductive. Um, but there's nothing it's like to be a rock. 
uh, you, you, there's something it's like to be a dog or a bat, and I might know some things about what it's like to be a dog or a bat. Uh, there are certainly a lot of things I don't know about what it's like <laughs> to be a dog or a bat. But there's something like a subjective experience, what I like to call uh, p yes, there are pea sheets lighting up. So the, the taste of lemon. That is great. I think it might be pretty awesome. Like to to I I used to I I uh, when I was a teenager I used to close my eyes and 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 make a click sound and do it close to walls and far away from walls and in open spaces to see if I could hear the difference because my grandfather was blind and I'd seen a documentary about how some blind people used clicks to kind of navigate space a little bit and I could I could I got to the point where I could sort of reliably tell the difference between being pretty close to a wall and being in an open space and bats obviously have a lot more of that but anyway the point is that there's something that it's like right to, to smell lemon zest or freshly cut grass right, or right. see or see the color yellow or whatever there's something that it's like whereas there's nothing that it's like for a, for a rock to encounter the sun there's no subjective experience there so zombies are thought to be just those kinds of things as close to persons as possible there's nothing that it's like to be um and 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 so this gets played out in two ways in movies, right? The one is the zombies that are maybe they have subjective experiences, maybe not, but they're like slow and they can't talk and they just sort of walk forward and they want to eat you. Or maybe they're really quick and agile, but again, they can't talk, they, they can't seem to reason, they just want to eat you. And then the other kind of zombie is the sort of android you know, computer thing that's very sophisticated and can talk and you might mistake for being a person, um, yeah. but which presumably totally. there's nothing it's like to be because there's nothing it's like to be your laptop. It's just like a rock in that sense. <laughs> um, so these zombies, are they, I don't know, where do they, where do they fall they're, on They're that? more like a, yeah, they're more like the first kind. They're sort of almost like a force of nature. Um, hmm. they're, so the, 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 the game is set in 1993 in Kentucky, in rural Kentucky, and basically uh, something has happened, a horrible disease has broken out, and people are now suddenly turning into these kind of mindless flesh-eating beings who wander the earth, seeking nothing but the, the flesh of the living. Mm. Um, and it's, 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 it's a story told almost entirely through uh, little scattered bits of news reports and short TV programs that you see in the background of sort of because at first the the world outside of the place you're in hasn't collapsed and then slowly over time um the thing spreads outside and then eventually the power goes off the water goes off and the tv stops working that's very uh this sounds like home hey uh yeah that's 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 one of the reasons why i'm recommending it because you know seeing seeing a uh you know kind of breakdown in law and order in real life um, yeah, it actually makes you think a little bit about these things, you know, zombies, obviously not a real thing, but the way that a society can turn sort of anarchic is I think very much, uh, not a figment of our imaginations. Yeah. Okay. My recommendation, uh, if you, if you want more reading on zombies, David Chalmers is the leading zombie <laughs> philosopher, although I think he's wrong because he, uh, thinks zombies are a conceptual impossibility in a way um but my recommendation it's saturday if you hear this watch the springbok versus british lions game if you hearing this after saturday watch the third match in the series 
I think that patriotism is profound. I think that our material lives, our civil liberties, and our, our, our sort of cultural and community circumstances are only going to be preserved and improved if South Africans enjoy patriotism. We spend a lot of time um, warning. And I think that this podcast, in a way, is a warning. And um, one that we've applied the relevant caveats to, not to be too alarmist or anything. And the, and the carrot is also important. It's not just about stick. Making this country finally into the, the great republic that it ought to be uh, requires not just stick, but also some carrot. And I think that one of the most living embodiments of that carrot, something that we really can be entertained by and, and take a shared sense of pride in, is, is rugby. Uh, we were the best in the world. We're currently fighting to maintain that title. And uh, with all the shenanigans off the pitch aside, you know, I think that it's a wonderful test of athleticism and intelligence and team spirit. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I'm looking forward to it myself. And uh, if you, if you're a fan, I'm sure you are too. And if you're not, maybe find a way to have a beer with, some people who are fans and 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 see if you can tap into a bit of that spirit uh and it's definitely not the only thing and i don't i don't want to exaggerate its power but i think i think fun matters uh, and joy matters and uh 100 yeah, so um yeah no so so i'm not a big sports guy um i you know barely watch any sports but i must say that watching the national team play in a good match is it's it despite my lack of interest in sport, it can be a truly magnificent experience, particularly when it's with other people who are invested in it. Um, yeah. I usually the other only people watch are soccer key. when I, I have I, a, Yes. I usually only watch I soccer what, when I, watch, I have I just my want soccer to fan friend. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I, it's I, a different experience. <laughs> yeah. I, I, watched, I watched the game last weekend with my lovely lady. Uh and it it was just not the same because she's like very analytic and was trying to dissect things and that's very nice but it's also really important sometimes to kind of switch off some of the fair and even-handedness and be with someone who's not trying to see is the ref blowing against us and for us in an irrational way sometimes and just be like i don't care if the ref is biased in our favor that's fine I just want us to win. Uh, <laughs> it's it is silly, and it is uh, it's like dancing. You know, it's dancing is silly. You, sometimes it's a lack of thing to do. So uh, yeah, no, hundred percent agree with that. When I watch uh, English football with my friend, or, or rather the English national side playing, um, he's an England supporter. I always try my best to imitate a completely irrational lunatic yob who's just mindlessly yes. in favor of, <laughs> of the english team and a shout shouting the for the Come team on, England. <laughs> it is the safest and most healthy place to take that mood we were talking about this this furor yes. impulse that we all have of just yeah 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 that, uh, yeah, that, that, that tribalistic uh, thing 
that's deep in our brains and is core to our, our identity. Mm. Anyway, true love. That is, I, I have think... one true love, and it is it's the Springboks. They are my love. They are the one. They are the only one. There you go. They are the one and only one. There you go. Amanda. Oh, it. All right. Uh, and with that, uh, have a wonderful week, and we will see you next week. Cheers, everyone, and keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, grr.